Sustainably shipping on the seven seas. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we examine how eco innovations are making the world more sustainable. Recently, global shipping has been in the spotlight as much of the world watched the massive container ship, The Ever Given, as it was lodged in the Suez Canal for seven days. Henry Byers is with FreightWaves, which is the world's leading supply chain intelligence company, and he joins us now on GreenSense. Henry, thanks for joining us. Hey, no problem. Glad to be here. Well, let's talk a little bit about your company. Uh, the global logistic market is estimated to be $96 trillion a year. Wow, that's a lot of money. <laughs> it is. And, you know, it's funny. We all uh, traverse different circles, and if you're not from the shipping circle, uh, most of us don't know very much about shipping. Uh, is uh, shipping uh, increasing in revenue, uh, stable or declining? Uh, right now, it, it's increasing. Um, you know, you could say that uh, it's the highest it's, it's really, you know, ever been. Um, you know, container rates, truckload rates, um, really across the board, we're seeing, you know, elevated rates. There's a lot that goes into that, but, but revenues, you know, companies are doing quite well at the moment. Well, your company's a leader, and I never heard of it just because I'm not in logistics. And so I'll try to do my best to summarize what you do, and then you can fill in the blanks. Um, your company, FreightWaves, provides a platform of near real-time information and forecasts that allows logistics professionals to monitor how changes in economic, regulatory, geopolitical, technological developments, and natural and man-made disasters can wreak havoc on logistics operations. Anything you want to add? <laughs> you nailed it. Um, essentially, you know, we have a media arm and, and a data analytics arm. So I primarily work with the data analytics part, which is FreightWave Sonar. It's our data analytics platform. Uh, but we also have the FreightWaves and American Shipper and the Modern Shipper, which is our media side. So we're, we both have an editorial team that's putting out, you know, the data that we possess, um, you know, just giving you, you know, an up-to-date, real-time view of what's happening on the ground. Uh, and writing news stories about that. And then we have the data analytics platform that is currently feeding data, you know, to a number of different companies, whether it be carrier shippers or brokers that are in between, um, you know, real-time data on what's happening within the specific, you know, segments of the market. If I was going to start my career over, I would definitely look at logistics. It's fascinating. And when I look at all the information you cover and the many uh, 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 pies that your company's fingers are in, it's, it's uh, pretty fascinating. Uh, uh, what do you like most about your job? Oh, I love it. There's never a dull moment, um, especially when, when uh, uh, you know, 20,000, uh, 20, you know, TEU vessel goes sideways in the Suez Canal. Uh, it can make it quite interesting, but it, it just, it's always changing. It's super dynamic. Um, it's highly fragmented, which, you know, uh, also brings an element of uh, surprise there. So uh, it, there's just never a dull moment in uh, supply chain and logistics. For those that may not know what a TEU is, can you explain? Exactly. So uh, I was thinking about that I was, as I was saying it, 20,000 TEU vessel, um, TEUs are a, a denominator for basically how volume and container shipping um, is measured. So, you know, if you say 20,000 TEU vessel, that means that that vessel could transport 20,000 20 foot containers. Um, obviously, a lot of those containers are 40 foot containers. So, you know, when you're looking at the total containers on board that specific ship, um, it's just the low end, lowest co common you know, denominator as far as a measurement of volume that, that ships can carry, those container ships. So a 20,000 TEU container ship, if you stack those containers on a train too high, how far would that reach? Um, if you stacked them all the way to the top, those, those ships with containers are about 18 stories tall. 
No, if you stack the containers on a train too high, how long, oh, long would yeah, the train yeah. run? How long oh, would the wow. train be? <laughs> oh man, those, those trains are, oh, it's incredible. I calculated, I think it came to a hundred miles. <laughs> oh wow, oh, yeah, it is insane how big that is. Just because most people, it's hard to put that into context. It's amazing how much uh, cargo shipped on these ships. Well, just to put the, the ship in per to perspective, um, the, the best way to say that that ever given that was in the Suez Canal is as long as the Empire State Building is tall. And then when you're on the ground looking up at that, the, you know, those containers on the ship is stacked as high as they possibly can, which this one was almost completely full. Um, it's 18 stories from the bottom of the ship where it sits in the water to the top. Amazing. Well, before we get into the ever given disaster, let's uh, talk a little bit about the history of shipping and give uh, some context to our story mm -hmm. and how containers revolutionized logistics and made it economical to ship inexpensive manufactured goods from China or fruits and vegetables grown in South America to the U.S. on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So when, when I was younger and I'd watch those old black and white movies, you would see uh, a banana is packed into a cargo net and they'd lower those into the hull of the ship and you know they'd pack all the other goods. Uh, how was cargo packed in ships before containers uh, uh, came about and, and why was it done that way? Well yeah it was it was mostly you know what, what today's terminology would, would be is break bulk um, or you know what we call row row or low low vessels. Um, you know break bulk vessels uh, you know the, the cargo's um, you know, it's not in containers, so it's, it's not all the same size or it's, it's loose. You know, you have uh, ships that can carry, you know, uh, commodities where they basically, um, you know, have big grain elevators that, that you know, fill up the ship entirely. Um, but it's extremely uh, piecemeal. You know, it's done, you know, in, in large part by hand with, with cranes and nets. Um, it got quite messy. Um, so when containerization came along, uh, it increased the efficiency of that operation quite a bit. And when did containers uh, come to be? And when were they commonplace? Um, it, it was really around the 50s. Um, it was where it, it started the idea. Malcolm McLean, um, you know, was the original, called the father of containerization. Um, but it wasn't really until about the, the 60s, 70s that it really uh, picks up steam. And then when, you know, uh, I, I'd say really, really the late 70s, early 80s is when it really started to take, to take off. Um, and obviously, the nature of, of international trade had a lot to do with that. Um, you know, Japan, East, the rise of East Asia. Uh, but that's really when it started gaining popularity. And how did containers change the economics of shipping? Um, it made it much more efficient. I mean, being able to, you know, load your containers, transport, you know, most importantly, arguably, is, is just the ability to, you know, have those containers move different modes. So, those containers not only can be stacked on a ship, but also can be uh, then placed onto a chassis and transported inland with a truck, or can be placed on the rail, like you mentioned, stacked too high um, and transported inland on the rail. So it really it changed the name of the game because you know what you had with trucks carrying around, um, you know, trailers full of, of cargo, um, being able to just take those trailers essentially and stack those on top of one another, um, you, you can imagine just how much more efficient that made things. Uh, I think, you know, you're, you're very familiar, obviously, with the, the vertical farming, um, and that, that certainly has a lot of parallels, in my opinion, as far as just the utilization of space, um, you know, and how much more efficient you can have things going vertically than, than just having them, having to stack, um, you know, either, or not stack at all, but just have them all laid out across the same, um, you know, 
surface area, you know, horizontally. Well, at some point in recent history, uh, according to my recollection, because uh, I used to work with a lot of mayors around the country, I would see this glut of shipping containers in U.S. ports like Newark and Long Beach. You would just see stacks of containers and all these mayors would complain that these were an eyesore. You know, they didn't know what to do with these containers. They'd create space problems. When did this start to occur? Well, right now, you know, there's kind of a, a container shortage, you could say. Yeah, um, we'll get to that in a second. But when, sure, did sure. The, when did the glut occur? Was that the 2000s, 2010? Yeah, I, I'd say more in the, the 2010s. I mean, you, you just had, uh, I think when, when China, you know, China's run, um, you could arguably say it, from 2000, when they entered the World Trade Organization, um, really the, the late 2000s, the early 2010s is, um, is, is when you had such a massive amount of increased, you know, imports from China. And, and I think that inevitably led to, you know, the U.S. exports a lot less than it imports. Uh, we run a tremendous trade deficit. Um, and, 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 you know, when that trade deficit is at its peak, um, that's when, you know, really um, you started to see a, a big glut in those containers. And to your point, now we have the exact opposite condition. Uh, the port yards are empty and there's a shortage of containers in the U.S. Uh, why? <laughs> Well, the, what's interesting is, so when we're, when we're talking about lanes, we're talking about volumes moving internationally um, or, or with any logistics lanes for those matter, or for that matter. So you're looking at getting something from point A to point B. Uh, the way the carriers are looking at that are, are in what we call terms of head haul and back haul. Head haul means that the, the, whatever market that, that you know, freight's coming out of um, is a market that has a surplus of outbound freight. So it's, it's, you know, when you're talking about China and the U.S. and the trade deficit, there's more freight coming from China to the U.S. than is going from the U.S. back to China. So therefore, you have that, that um, you know, the head haul versus back haul. So, so the ocean carriers right now, since there's so much demand, you know, the stimulus checks, the post-COVID, the reopening of the economy, there's so much going into the, the increased demand from East Asia. Those ocean carriers are getting record highs for, you know, revenue for shipping those containers back to the U.S., um, so, you know, oftentimes it's, it's in the interest of the ocean carriers to ship those back empty than it is back with a shipment that's full. So right now you have uh, U.S. exporters are, are complaining a bit because these ocean carriers are choosing to ship these back empty because that, they're not earning near the revenue that it could earn coming from China to the U.S. I mean, you're talking about the difference right now of, you know, what could be five, $6,000 difference in, in terms of what they're earning per container. So that's why you're seeing, um, you know, a, a, essentially a shortage uh, of containers in the U.S., but, but globally, just because of global demand is that, you know, uh, really record highs right now as far as, you know, imports for the yeah. U.S. And it's funny, during that glut, uh, many entrepreneurs got very creative to figure out alternative uses for those containers, from small homes to vertical farms to right. you name it. Uh, and now... Uh, we came up with an idea to build modular, scalable farms using uh, containers as uh, preformed units. So rather than putting a farm in a container, we broke down the components of a farm and put them in containers. But now we found the shipping containers have doubled or tripled in price and you can't get them. So right. <laughs> it's created right. a big problem out there. <laughs> well, I uh, just wait till 2022. Um, you know, at some point, uh, I, this is, it's somewhat unsustainable, in my opinion, um, just how much uh, volume there is. You know, what you had with COVID was a period, it was a very, very unique period in the sense that 
shippers found themselves with a lack of inventory. Um, you know, and then on the heels of that, you had these stimulus checks that, you know, were largely spent um, on items where, you know, you had a lot of people working from home. Um, a lot of those goods that people were consuming at that point or chose to spend on, um, you know, are not made here in the U.S. They're made overseas. A lot of that's made in East Asia and the Indian subcontinent. And so you had, you know, you had this tremendous demand going on right now, but I wonder, you know, with it at all-time highs, like what we're literally seeing is an all-time high uh, as far as what's, you know, being shipped from China to the U.S. in terms of the volume, how, how sustainable is that? And, and I really wonder, you know, what's on the hills of, of this uh, in, in terms of like 2022, when finally things correct a bit. Um, I, you know, it's my, my inclination to say that there'll be quite a, a glut of containers again. Well, you guys are in, now, in the know, so I'm going to uh, put my money on what you say. So let's talk about Evergiven. Um, you know, you heard a lot of uh, information out there that this was partly due to high winds, partly due to human error. Was this a natural or a man-made disaster? Um, I, it's probably a good um, analysis to say it was a combination of both. Um, I, I do think that, you know, it's underestimated sometimes how much pressure a sandstorm or, or winds for that matter could put on a vessel of that size. Um, and, and there was, you know, it was going through a part in the canal um, that, that some parts of even the Panama Canal, you know, the Panama Canal can't handle vessels that size. Um, a normal size of a, a vessel going through there is, is around 14,000 TEUs. So you're talking about 6,000 6, less TEUs in those ships. And that, that's how narrow that channel was. Um, so you can say that there's some man-made, you know, it, was it dredged enough? There's a lot you could put on there. And then there's also the fact that, um, you know, what, was that being piloted by tugboats? Um, it, it wasn't, you know, the, the way the Panama Canal guides ships um, through the canal is with tugboats. Uh, um, the, the Suez Canal has a pilot on board, but the, uh, they're not supposed to be, you know, piloting the ship. They're basically doing that in conjunction with the pilot that's there. Um, so it, probably a share of both, but I'd say primarily the natural, uh, or not natural disaster, but natural, you know, the winds were well, largely accounted for that. Did your company forecast this event or the possibility that something like this could happen to a super container ship? Or were you as surprised as everybody else that this occurred? I was surprised as everybody else. Um, you know, I, I would say that when the Panama Canal, it's a freshwater canal system. So when there was, uh, you know, a drought there, um, you know, the, and the, the water that largely feeds the, the lake that they use to, to put the water in the locks, you know, we, we kind of started looking at that idea of, you know, a, a canal potentially becoming, you know, impassable. But I think um, to see it the way it happened, um, you know, was, was pretty eye-opening because I think a lot of times with the geopolitical risk in the Middle East, we tend to think that it could happen um, for, from a war, uh, something of that nature. But to just see a, a boat simply get pushed sideways, um, I'd say that was a, a black swan of sorts for, for about all of us. Were there lessons learned and are there uh, standard operating procedures or measures put in place to avoid this from happening again? Yeah, I think, you know, the, you could argue it's a, it's a you know, national security, uh, you know, grave importance for, for Egypt. Um, you know, the countries there surrounding the, the Suez Canal, uh, um, you know, how critical, I think it, it opened everyone's eye to just how critical that canal is and how, you know, this, we need to do everything we can to keep this from happening again. Uh, but I think as far as supply chains here in the U.S. are concerned, um, or anyone that's responsible for moving freight in that, that canal, 
I think uh, it just basically says to everyone, hey, you know, you need to be ready for for something that you know that that you may not may never may never think it will happen. And I would say that anyone moving freight through the Panama Canal should be just as um, you know ready in that sense. Where where if this canal becomes impassable, you know, what, what are you going to do in that case? So having those alternate, at least a, a game plan for what would happen, I think is is extremely important at this point. For most of us that aren't around ships, as we were talking earlier, it's just, it's hard to imagine the scale of a vessel this large. Uh, you made a comparison to a skyscraper, um, uh, you, you know, and, and uh, how tall it would be uh, if, if the containers were stacked to the top. Have you ever seen one of these ships or have you ever traveled on one? I have. I have. What's it I've, like? I've, seen them. I've never traveled, <laughs> never traveled on one, but I've been to, you know, uh, the largest port uh, or ports there in China. I've been to, you know, Shanghai, Yanqian, Shenzhen, and Hong Kong. Um, it is, it's hard to put into words when you're, when you're up beside these things, just how, how large that really is. But even more so when you're in a boat, like I was in the boat in uh, the harbor there in Hong Kong, seeing one of the largest ships go by. Um, you're just in awe. It's hard to really put into words. It, it, it's really incredible how massive they are. How does uh, the ever given uh, compare in size to the largest ship? Is it the largest? Is it the top five? No, there's, there's some that are larger. Um, you know, right now, you know, it, it's one of the larger ships on the water. You know, there are, there are only around probably uh, 40 to 60 ships that, that qualify as being, you know, that, that size, you know, some go a little taller, so, uh, you know, but really, that, that's a, that, that ship can only call so many ports in the world, for instance. Um, that ship can only call, you know, certain ports in East Asia. It can only call certain ports in Europe. And, and, and the you know, U.S. East Coast is not even, um, you know, equipped to handle a vessel of that size. So the largest ports on the East Coast in the U.S., Savannah, New York, New Jersey, you know, that could even, couldn't even pass under the Bayonet Bridge there in, uh, in, in New York, New Jersey. So that, that gives you some perspective on just how much larger that is relative to all the other ships. Uh, but that said, there's only about, you know, 40, 50 ships that are, that are that size or bigger. Will this stop a trend of building bigger ships? Or do you think this trend to build bigger will continue? Well, it's interesting how many issues we've seen. I think, you know, inevitably when you have demand at record highs and you see these ships now being full to the, to the U.S. West Coast, in China, going to Europe, uh, et cetera, um, you know, you're having containers fall off and, and stormy seas. You're, you're starting to get a picture of how, when these vessels are filled to the brim, um, just how much harder it is for those vessels to maneuver. I do think um, we're kind of reaching that, that peak. Um, and I do think you may actually see, uh, you know, new vessels be built in that 18,000 to 20,000 range as opposed to, you know, over 20,000. Because I do think you're getting at a point where you know, you can manage that many more containers, but um, is it worth the, the risk of, of those containers falling off? Or, you know, in a case like the Suez Canal, um, you know, basically when they, when they do a, a law of general average, which is a maritime law that basically says that all of the, you know, all of the shippers and all of the companies that have, you know, uh, freight aboard that ship, they basically share in the cost of recovering that ship. So when that, you talk about the recovery operation of a ship that size, I think you will see um, you know, some pushback saying, you know, are you guys responsibly building these ships? Because if we're going to be on the hook for, mm -hmm. you know, problems that occur, you know, from the ship's size, um, you know, they're going to receive quite a bit of pushback, I'd imagine, from that. 
Well, shipping is a little like the agricultural industry. It's ubiquitous. It uses a lot of energy and water, and our lives depend on it. Uh, but unless you're involved with shipping or logistics, people generally just don't know that much about it. Uh, in your opinion, someone who's an expert, who's covered uh, you know, this, this market and analyzes it, what do you think the most important things about shipping are that you think the general public should know? Uh, I think, it, you know, when you look around you uh, in any room that you're in, um, you know, or you're going about your day-to-day -day just realizing, you know, how, you know, basically everything that you use on a day-to-day -day basis um, either arrives to you in a truck or, and a lot of that stuff um, also arrives via container ship from overseas. So, you know, at this point, I think it's, there's a number of things to to take into consideration, but I think just, just, just understanding that, you know, how, how much less uh, you know we produce that we actually consume here in the u.s at this point um and, and you know and, and oftentimes how uh how many people uh, are involved in the process of getting what you use on a daily basis to you um you know i think when when COVID hit i think most people or a lot of people that that didn't really know about much about logistics or supply chain just realized how critical it is that the people on the ground doing the the work whether it be trucking whether it be on the rails warehousing or, you know, container shipping um, or maritime shipping for that matter, just how crucial those people are to, to our day, you know, everyday lives. Well, the uh, pandemic has highlighted a lot of cracks in institutional systems and the shipping industry has been highlighted not only because of the Suez Canal, but because of these gaps in the supply chain. You know, it's hard to get materials right now. Is this a, is the shipping industry at a point where it needs to rethink its logistics or is society at a point where it needs to rethink, uh, do we really need to have everything available all the time? <laughs> so your thoughts on that one? Um, I would say that, that right now from a supply chain perspective, um, I think a lot of companies, you know, when we had the trade war with China, um, just the risks um, that have been, you know, made light of here in the past, you know, two to three years, I think a lot of companies are, revisiting their supply chains are revisiting you know their countries of origin as far as where they manufacture their goods um, and i think there will be with the you know the advent of automation uh, robotics here in the, the u.s i do think you'll see a lot more uh, movement to de-risk your supply chain by either nearshoring or bringing some of that or, or what can be br brought back you know and, and done here um, in the u.s or in, in countries you know north or south um, you know in close proximity um, therefore, de-risking, you know, a piece of that supply chain. But I also think that, uh, you know, from a, a consumer, I don't think consumers are going to reverse the trend of just expect, you know, their expectations. You know, I think the on-demand, um, you know, piece of that equation is, is going to continue. Uh, it's, it's just going to be exacerbated here, you know, in the coming years. I think people working from home, the, the way that that has shifted just, um, you know, everybody's workday. Um, I, I do think with, we will see technology have to, to play some catch up there. Um, I do think, you know, a very real possibility is, is, you know, drone delivery, things like that kind of helping fill the gap. But I do think, um, you know, we're likely to see a few years here where the logistics industry is busy, you know, catching up because I think with, without the risk that we've seen over the last three years, um, you know, it, a lot of companies are, aren't willing to put in the, the, you know, the data analytics, the uh, process efficiencies, you know, the things that are, that are critical to catch up. Um, and I think now everyone is, is sitting down and saying, okay, you know, we've got to really think this through because if, if, if e-commerce is likely to continue on its current path, 
we've got to figure out a way to survive or, or we'll die. Um, our show is on uh, uh, sustainability and our motto is always big, not all green is good. It needs to make economic sense. So I, I, let's talk a little bit about the economics, uh, sustainability and the environment. Um, what are the environmental impacts from shipping? You know, how does it impact air emissions, uh, water discharged into the sea uh, or, or waste, uh, uh, comp uh, consumption of fossil fuels and impact to marine life? So if you could just sort of touch on that. Sure. Well, I think it's, uh, it's an industry that's very dependent on fossil fuels. Um, obviously, I think, you know, it's also responsible for a lot of, uh, a lot of emissions. Um, you know, I think diesel fuel, uh, the advent of, of EVs um, is a very you know real thing that a lot of companies are considering. Uh, but even from that perspective, with electric you know vehicles or you know electric trucks for that matter, you know things like uh, the embodied energy going into the manufacturing, the the batteries, um, obviously the capacity batteries. What happens when those batteries are, are used? Um, there's a lot that the the shipping industry is considering at the moment. And you know you before all this happened with maritime and specific you know, specifically, we had the, the low sulfur fuel mandates where, you know, basically the uh, International Maritime Organization was basically coming forth and saying that, you know, the, 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 the fuels we burn need to be cleaner. Um, and I think you're going to continue to see that trend. Um, it's, it's even probably going to, you know, there's going to be even more coming down the pipe with a lot of the, the green energy type legislation that's likely to be passed here in the, in the next few years. I didn't look into this, but if you could share, what what is shipping's uh, a record? Is it a is it a sustainable industry? Is it a high uh, environmentally impacting industry? What, what what's the word on uh, the shipping industry? Um, I'd say you know the you mean the record as far as how it's viewed historically. Yes, uh, I'd say it's definitely one that that is uh, you know polluting quite a bit. Um, I'd say that's the, that's the record as far as the shipping industry. It's not known for being uh, a clean and sustainable industry, but I think you know all most of most of the largest players involved right now are certainly understanding that you know this is something that we're all going to have to face together, and we're all going to have to figure out you know creative solutions to address the issues. So, as an analyst looking at the industry, is there a couple of things in your mind that can be done to make it cleaner and greener? Yeah, there's a lot that can be done. Um, you know, I think. You know, it, when we're looking at electric vehicles, um, I think one of the biggest things to, to obviously consider and, and to factor in is, um, you know, where, where's the energy coming from, right? Like not all electricity um, is created equal as far as um, pollution is concerned. So I think, you know, um, using more renewable energy sources and really getting the, you know, sustainable ways to capture that energy is going to be of critical importance. Um, but I think, you know, uh, right now, um, just data analytics, um, process efficiencies, things that can be done digitally um, and can just be done better and more efficiently. Like for instance, in the cargo, in the container or truckload industry, both, a lot of the containers or truckloads that you, trucks that you see on the road are actually empty. And, and normally there's freight nearby that could have been picked up and carried back to wherever that container or that truck is going. So when you're looking at um, those assets traveling empty, that is one major way that I think, um, you know, the, the industry being more transparent, being more, um, you know, open with data that we can really help solve some, some, some big issues there, which is just the inefficiency of hauling these assets empty. 
because if there's a load that should be picked up whenever a truckload's moving from Los Angeles to Chicago and that, that truck travels back empty to Los Angeles, you know that there's a piece of freight that could have been hauled. Uh, being able to make sure that, you know, that freight is readily known about and available, um, those are all things that I think we can get much better at. Henry, you've been very generous with your time and your knowledge. I uh, really appreciate uh, uh, you being on GreenSense and uh, I enjoyed talking with you. So anytime you have uh, something that's newsworthy as it relates to the sustainability of shipping, please give us a call. We'd love to have you back on. I appreciate it. That's Henry Byers with FreightWave talking about the global shipping industry. I'm Robert Colangelo. This is GreenSense. Subscribe to our podcast at greensensefarms.com. Check out the GreenSense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM, WBBM Chicago.